Hi, we're here with Jeremy Longhurst of Broadwater talking about next year's ISAS meeting, which will take place from May 13th to 15th in Miami Beach down in sunny Florida. Jeremy, tell us about the meeting. I think the annual meeting next year will actually be superb. It's under new leadership, and that leadership has absolutely committed to refocusing the meeting. And it's going to refocus on being highly practical. It's going to focus on new techniques, new technologies, and the information you get from that meeting is the type of information you can go back to your practice next week and implement it and use it. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Today on the Nurse Surgery Podcast, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Hunt Bajer. I don't think he really needs an introduction, but uh, for those of you who are not in neurosurgery, Hunt Bajer is uh, one of the masters of vascular neurosurgery, of cerebrovascular surgery. He is the head at UT Southwestern, uh, which is a very storied program originally under Duke Sampson, who is legendary in our field. Hunt, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Now, Hunt, we could talk to you about any number of things, but JP and I wanted to touch on this issue of um, of the vascular neurosurgeon, the, the intracranial vascular neurosurgeon. We've had a number of endovascular surgeons on, and we wanted to get to the issue of, uh, of where it's been because, you know, I, I, I'm here in the hospital today doing a case, and the residents were going nuts because they were talking about this um, type 5 fistula that's going to be done today and how fascinating this, this was going to be. And everybody's over there watching their case. And of course, nobody scrubbed with me, which is fine. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, that's typical, right? So something about vascular neurosurgery captures the imagination. And I think every neurosurgeon at one point wants to be that person that you are. So tell us a little bit about the history, how you got here, uh, your career, and, and maybe we'll get in a little bit later about, about where it's headed. Sure. The, uh, it's been an incredible voyage. Actually, the Yassergill lecture, which was uh, which uh, I was going to give at the WNS, uh, deta- details a lot of that history going back really to the 60s and some of the incredible neurosurgical innovations. And then, of course, Yassergill uh, training or getting his microsurgical skills honed under Pearden Donahue at, at the University of Vermont, about 100 yards from where I was born, actually. And uh, then... He, of course, founded uh, microvascular neurosurgery. Duke Sampson, uh, during his training at UT Southwestern, uh, did a year, uh, did a half year with Yassergill and a half year with Jerome and Guillaume in Paris, where he learned transcendental surgery. He then uh, went into the service during the Vietnam conflict, uh, stationed in the Philippines, then returned to Dallas to join Kim Clark. And at that time, there was really nothing in vascular disease uh, in Dallas. Uh, it was Duke. And uh, I was, I started my, I was a medical student when Duke came back. And I started as an intern 
after he'd been back two or three years. And by then, he, re- he had already developed a, a substantial uh, supervascular practice in not just Dallas and Fort Worth, but the Southwest. And later that uh, generalized it. It was from his innate skills as well as his, uh, and he published his results um, with extremely high integrity. And I, I would pass on to my, my um, young colleagues uh, that uh, my role models are Duke Sampson and Charles Drake. And uh, I, I'm sad for all of you, uh, all of you that did not get to know Charlie Drake. Uh, that was that was a person that every day you followed him around at the University of Western Ontario and around just saying, "Dear God, please make me five percent of that man." Uh, that's the kind of uh, massive uh, individual he was in terms of his humanity, surgical skill, uh, perseverance taking on the worst of the worst. Uh, and it was, you know, patients were sent from all over the world uh, during my fellowship there. And uh, it was incredible, the, the complexity and the, and the carnage that happened because we didn't have, you know, the kind of uh, adjunctive things we had now. And if you look back on our neurosurgical history, neurosurgeons just had to figure it out. And they were doing some incredible uh, open endovascular things early, like in the 1960s, injecting, you know, uh, uh, through a, an injector open into the sac of a, of a giant aneurysm, putting horsehair and copper wire and all sorts of things. Sean Mullen at the University of Chicago was uh, very much a pioneer in that wild arena. And I remember Dr. Drake uh, showed a slide that uh, was a successfully treated uh, giant aneurysm, massive giant aneurysm, full of horsehair. And the angiogram was perfect for a year. And it recurred and bled uh, fatally. So, the, you know, that, that was the time when it was, it was wild west. You have to figure it out. These are horrible things. And I think as, as and, and I'll get back to Dallas, when Duke uh, was developing his practice, uh, I uh, came to graduation and uh, the, after my fellowship uh, with Dr. Drake. And uh, uh, he asked me to join him, which I did. And uh, it was really fabulous. I've never seen a surgical experience like that, uh, where we were, it was, it was rock and roll every day. And line them up. And uh, the, because we had no other alternatives. And, and when, if, if it was something we'd never seen before, we had to figure it out. And I, I remember a poignant uh, case. I've been very depressed during my training when I went with spinal uh, dural fistula. Uh, and the standard at that time was, if you'll believe it, a full laminectomy and stripping the cord of all the coronal plexus. Now, it, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out the neurological results of those procedures. And I remember I was in, in London and watching Lindsay Simon do a case and it dawned on him in the middle of the case to, and he saw that the arterialized vein coming out of the root sleeve in type one. And he just put a clip on it and sat there for a while and the whole damn thing turned blue, of course. And I, I went straight to the phone and called Duke and said, Duke, uh, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, and that was really the start of it. one of those foundational moments for me where 
you know, you think of, you know, we've got this solved and, and all of a sudden it's crystal clear and we've got it wrong. Um, but those were the, that was the world. And, and I think there's another domain and, and you think about some of the big uh, uh, AVMs and, and uh, so on that, that, we, that we were seeing. And there was a perception and, and I, I think a misperception historically that when you look at the, at the imaging, it's horrible. And you assume because you've got uh, the patient came to attention because they had a hemorrhage, you assume that it has to be treated because it looks so bad. And and now in retrospect of uh, you know having forty years to, to reflect, a lot of those things, uh, the natural history, is substantially more benign than any kind of therapy even now that we can offer. So it, it's it's been an incredible odyssey to see those transitions. And I remember the um, when I was sitting for the boards in the mid '80s, uh, Marty Weiss was one of my examiners in my third hour, and that was in spine and peripheral nerve. And he and he walked I walked in the room and he said, uh, and he had my case log and he knew where I trained, and he said, "You're shitting me, right?" And I said, uh, "What's that, sir?" And he said, "Well, you've got you've got 85 aneurysms, you've got 70 AVMs." You got 80 bypasses, you got one lumbar disc, and some trauma. And I said, Well, sir, I think that lumbar disc might have been at the VA, and I kind of doubt that I went out for it. He said, Come on in, son, take your coat off. This is going to be fun. And, uh, but it was th those were the wild days, and where we're doing multiple bypasses a week. And, and I think the bypass trial uh, in, the, in the 80s caused. <laughs> and rethink is that necessary uh, <laughs> or not and the answer of course is, is it's, it's sometimes necessary and when it is it's usually trauma or it's a giant aneurysm or a complex reconstruction that that requires high levels of skill and now to the point of your interview uh, and who's going to be uh, skilled to do that uh, in the future Wow. So Dr. Bajor, hearing you uh, talk about your early days in training under those two great surgeons, clearly they influenced you so much. Um, so thinking about the Wild West days that you had back in your, your early time of training, looking forward, what, what new frontiers do you see for cerebrovascular neurosurgery? I think we're in an incredibly uh, empowered place. The, uh, the endovascular wars uh, are, are not being fought anymore. And I think we're seeing much more integration. Uh, the, the, you know, the positive stroke trials uh, from several years ago have brought a number of new practitioners, particularly neurologists into the field. And where we have a pretty uh, interesting balance between neurosurgeons, neurology and neuroradiology and changes in the financial world have allowed us to structure uh, service line uh, uh, practices, in, both in private practice and in academics, in ways that break down the barriers of, well, it has to be in our department or it's bad. Uh, and I, I think the my view of, of, of the integration of these specialties really was very much influenced by Bernard Bendock. Uh, and Bernard uh, was uh, one of my great trainees at Northwestern and joined me after doing his fellowship with Nick Hopkins. 
And when he came back as the first endovascular neurosurgeon at Northwestern, uh, it was a dramatic and positive impact. And I'll tell you why. When Dr. Bendock would be doing procedures and the risk profile of what he was doing was all of a sudden going up substantially and he knew he had a simple surgical option, the catheter came out and he took the patient the next day to the operating room. And the and I'll tell you why that was so positive besides adding great safety to the procedures. You didn't have to kill the, the lesion with, with the Phillips screwdriver because you have multiple uh, uh, arrows in your quill. And the endovascular radiologist, uh, it was, it was eye-opening to them. And it made them really realize that, you know, there are better options than, than pushing it to the extreme uh, for a patient with, that, that could be treated with a 3 or 4% risk in another way. And I, I think that was part of, you know, in my history, that was part of where that integrative strategy became real. And I think getting the finances right was critical also. But, we, you know, I, I see that as, as looking at this from the open surgical perspective, you, you, the open surgical surgeon going forward is going to not only have to have endovascular and stroke capability, microsurgical capability, they're going to have to be like a hematologist in their, in their detailed understanding of coagulation, laser intervention, for, for deep cavernomas, I think it's going to be very important in our future. Radiosurgery, uh, that, these are things that are going to have to be uh, all possessed by the uh, cerebrovascular surgeon of the future. Now, how we get there uh, with, with dramatic changes in the amount of knowledge that will be demanded is an issue. And how do we get to the technical demands, which are going to change dramatically? They're, they're going to need the cases they're going to be not open are going to be unbelievably uh, difficult. There'll be uh, twice or three times endovascular failures and radiosurgical failures and other technologies uh, that we don't know yet. And it's going to be, it's going to require a very interesting skill set going forward while open surgical volumes are likely to decrease in vascular disease. I love that you go there, Hunt, because I wanted to ask about that. I know that there are a lot of folks now that all talk about dual training, their endovascular and their open vascular. Most of the ones I've met, I feel like they're a little bit more of one than the other, right? They're a little bit more like the endo guy. They're a little bit more like the open guy. Is there going to be a role in the future, as you say, because the pathologies are more serious and less common for doing what you did, which is to do the the really beautiful microsurgery. And then, and I'll follow that up by, by adding that I sort of lament the loss of that super art form of microsurgery um, that, uh, that seems to just get concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Can you comment on, is there going to be a Hunt Bajor, you know, 20 years from now, or is that just not possible? Well, I, I think, uh, I, I think it is possible. And it's, and it's, you know, if you think about the, you know, one of the drivers here is going to be regionalization of cerebrovascular disease, should it be done in every hospital? Well, uh, you know, at some, some levels and stroke interventions, you know, IV interventions, of course, uh, should, should every, every uh, mom and pop hospital be doing AVMs? And I think, 
that is going to be very difficult to justify going forward. So if you regionalize care and you have teams of people, where you've got a vascular neurologist, you've got a first-rate radiology and interventional radiology, you've got neurosurgery, some of whom are endovascular heavy, some are, are uh, open surgical heavy, and maybe some are, are, are exclusively one or the other. Uh, I think then you have, you have a, a framework where that sort of skill could be developed. Dan Barrow made an interesting comment at a meeting that we just had in uh, St. Louis honoring Ralph Dacey's uh, career. And Dan made the point that every program that is serious about vascular disease needs to have an open surgical advocate. And that's really, uh, it really struck a chord with me uh, because that has kind of been my role after I returned to Dallas is, uh, you know, to be there to, to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If a 35-year-old with an acute third nerve palsy comes in from a posterior communicating aneurysm and mass effect on the third nerve, if that's not a surgical case, then what exactly is? And for anybody who's going to be involved in this in the future, those are where you learn your fundamental skills, the fundamental microsurgery, the fundamental vascular principles of, of you know, proximal, uh, uh, you know, anatomy, distal anatomy, when can I trap it? What, what are my options at each point in the, in the evolution of a case? How are they going to learn that if they can't do a, a, a PCOM with a third nerve palsy? And then what are they going to do? It's one of the things I ask every time I go on a visiting professorship. When I get the residence alone, I say, okay, we've got a 32-year-old woman that comes in. Uh, previously well, sudden onset, uh, severe headache, coma, vomiting in the field, intubated in the field, right third nerve palsy, massive right temporal lobe hematoma, herniation, uh, and cerebral posturing. Take me through that one. And, uh, you know, that's, that's another one where, uh, you know, this is something that can't be referred. People have to have that, have, that are trained and certified in our specialty have to be able to save that woman's life. They have to understand the principles of doing it. Uh, and, uh, and that does not involve a trip to the endovascular suite. So I, I, you know, you know, the, the shadow in the, in the, in the middle fossa into that, uh, and, and how do you get access to that? And, and those the simple principles like that are, are unfortunately not widely taught now. To your point. Well, Hunt, we want to thank you for your time and your very positive message and the historical lesson here. Uh, you are truly an icon in our field and uh, be safe and Godspeed. Well, thank you so much. And if I, if I could close with one thing, it is absolutely clear to me that our best days are ahead. Amen to that. Take a second to think about how you got to where you are today. It was by others investing in your education, and now you can pay it forward. It's as simple as using your Amazon account that we all have and we all love. Please consider contributing to the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation via Amazon Smile. If you have any questions regarding signing up, 
uh, email us at the nursery podcast at gmail.com.